Well, as Chuck mentioned, we are in the uh, second week of our Advent season. Last week, we were talking about the hope we have in God. And this week, we are talking about the love of God as demonstrated in him sending Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that Chuck mentioned a news story that had brought great divisiveness to our nation. And then this week, if you've been following the news again, you'll see seemingly minutes after that decision was made, another one which was eerily similar came out. A grand jury, once again, chose not to indict a man who was responsible for the death of another man. And so it's created this veritable, perfect storm of outrage in our country right now. There's protests going on right now all across our nation. And so we have this peculiar situation in this Christmas season of the the merrymaking that we do with parties and the consumerism that is um, Christmas so often in America. But at the same time, there's great unrest. It reminds us of the reality that the story of Jesus coming to earth isn't just a nice kid story that gives us an excuse to shop. We really need hope. We really do need good news. And even apart from news stories, the reality is Though Christmas is often the season of great joy for many, a time with family, a time to intentionally carve out um, time together for many of us, and I know many people even in this chapel, it's, it's a very hard season. It may be the hardest season of the year. So on the one hand, you have some people singing, it's the most wonderful time of the year. But on the other hand, we have many saying, it's actually the most difficult season of my life. And so if that's where you find yourself Today, we have good news, friends, and I'm so excited to be able to share it with you. So in our text today, we meet Mary and Joseph in Herod's temple complex. They're coming, like every good Jew, to give sacrifices for Mary's purification and to dedicate the baby Jesus. And we meet this amazing, bizarre, and strange figure named Simeon. It's the only place in the Bible where we meet this character, Simeon. But before we dive into that, here's what I want us to do by way of introduction. It's important that we don't sterilize or glamorize the circumstances surrounding Christ's coming. I want us to see that if you feel lowly this morning, if you feel humbled, if you feel even in despair or depression, Christ entered right into the middle of that from the very beginning. When God became a man, he didn't choose to be born in the Beverly Hills. He chose to be born in one of the lowliest possible situations. So I want us to see three ways that Jesus Christ entered into this despair that we often have find ourselves in in this country and across the world. Number one, Jesus was born into a tiny town of ill repute called Nazareth. So Jesus was born in a town called Nazareth about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. Now this was not the type of place that you wanted to become from. Jesus could have chosen to be born anywhere, but he chose to be born in Nazareth. Now we know that this town was of ill repute because of John 1. In John 1, Jesus is calling several of his disciples, and he calls a man named Philip, and he says, come and follow me. And then Philip, in his great joy, goes and finds a buddy named Nathaniel. And he says this in John 1.45, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now listen to Nathanael's reply in the very next verse. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come from Nazareth? This was Jesus' hometown. I mean, can you imagine if he would have said that now? The media would have gone crazy with that. Can anything good come from Nazareth? 
And yet this is where Jesus chose to be associated with. This is where he was brought up. This was his people, Nazarenes. Number two, Jesus was born into a very poor family. Jesus was born into a very poor family. Even in the Christmas season, it seems to to highlight if you are in in financial, just in a tough time, it it, it exasperates that. It kind of highlights that. And and Jesus' family was very poor, and we know this because of the type of sacrifice that they brought to the temple in our text today. They brought two small birds. Now, the text does say, as the law called for, two small birds, but the reality is that actually was a provision for the poorest people. The law didn't first call for two birds. It called for a lamb and then a a bird. And it said, if you can't afford the typical sacrifice, then you could bring two birds instead. This is what Jesus' parents brought. Jesus was incredibly poor. When God became a man, he chose to be born poor. Number three, Jesus was literally born in a barn. So the next time that your parents say, were you born in the barn? Now you've got the best comeback ever. Well, the son of God was, and uh, he turned out all right. Jesus was literally born in a barn, but not even just in a barn. He was born after an arduous journey away from his hometown. So we need to get a picture of this. Like I said, Nazareth was about 100 miles north of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was right next to Bethlehem. So he was born in Bethlehem, about 100 miles away. It just so happens that during Mary's third trimester, Caesar decided to do a census. And this meant that Joseph had to take his entire family down to Bethlehem. Now, this wasn't a luxurious trip. This was through many hills, through the wilderness. Imagine it, ladies. You're in your ninth month of a pregnancy. You have to journey a hundred miles to go to a foreign city that you've probably never been to before. Mary was probably between the ages of 14 and 16. And you have no idea when you're going to deliver. And you don't even know when you get to Bethlehem where you're going to stay. This was the circumstances surrounding the birth of the Son of God. So we need not glamorize or sterilize this situation. And so they do finish this journey, which would have taken, for an average person, eight to ten days, which means for a pregnant gal. I've never been in that situation, but you know it would probably take twice as long, maybe. So after two weeks of journeying, they come to Bethlehem. Earlier in Luke 2, he tells us this. When she gave birth, Mary laid Jesus in a manger. Why did, he lay, why did she lay him in a manger? Because there was no place for them in the inn. There was no place for Jesus when he was born. So first, he was born in a tiny town of ill repute. He was born into a very poor family. And then when he was finally born, he was born away from his hometown in a place that had no room for him. So don't miss this. When God, the creator of everything, came to the world, these are the circumstances that he chose to enter into so that, as Hebrews 2 tells us, he could be a faithful high priest for us. See, as Christians, we don't have a disconnected deity who doesn't really understand our situation. We're not deists who believe that God just wound up the world and then departed like a bad landlord and never checked up on it. We have a personal God who entered into our suffering. So be of good cheer, friends. Wherever you find yourself this morning, Jesus Christ really does understand your situation. From the very beginning, Jesus was turning everything upside down, reorienting our entire conception of power. Because here's the truth. God is not concerned about your social prominence. 
God is concerned about our heart's posture. That's a good word for Los Angeles, right? God doesn't care about your social prominence, just so you know. If so, Jesus wouldn't have made the cut. He does care about your heart's posture because Jesus will only associate with those who are humble. Even the first people who came to worship him weren't the royalty of that time. In fact, the king tried to kill him. Who came to worship him on that first night? Those shepherds. It was the most humble type of work that you could do. From the very beginning, Jesus was teaching us, I only associate with the humble. So wherever we find ourselves this morning, we're in a good place because Jesus is ready to come and dwell with us. So going to our text today, like I said, the story takes us into the temple complex of Herod where Mary and Joseph meet this guy, Simeon. And like I said, Simeon is nowhere else spoken of in the Bible. He kind of appears for a few verses and then he's off. And then we only know a few uh, things about him. It tells us that he was a righteous and devout man. And then this, which is fascinating, that the Holy Spirit was upon him, which tells us that he was a sort of prophet. And both of these points are incredibly significant. It's important that we also grasp a bit of the religious climate of Israel in that time. For 400 years, God had not spoken to Israel. The last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, was written 400 years before this event took place. And so Israel really was in a sort of spiritual drought. And so when it says that he was a devout and righteous man, Luke is making this point because that was hard to find in that time. See, the elite Israel um, religious authorities had kind of been split into two classes. Okay? You had the Pharisees on the one hand, who were known for their self-righteousness and their attention to the detail of the law. And they also associated with the common man pretty frequently. And then you had the Sadducees on the other side. And the Sadducees were more of the elite wealthy class, which was more concerned about rubbing shoulders with Rome and being friendly with the political environment than they were with interacting with the common Jewish man. This was the situation that they had been born into. And so Simeon is a righteous and devout man, but also the Holy Spirit was upon him. So this is a very interesting thing that's happening here. God had been seemingly silent for so long, and now we see another man who the Holy Spirit had come upon. Since moving to California in May, one of the things that I miss most about Florida, and I knew I would, is the big cumulus clouds that we have there. I love big clouds. I think it's the photographer in me, and they often uh, not only seem to promise rain, but they actually do bring rain. Now, coming to California for the first couple months, I wondered if it would ever rain again in my entire life. <laughs> and you seem that God has forsaken me once and for all, and then we have a week like last week, and we remember that God has not forsaken us. He has remembered us. Same thing for Israel. They were in a spiritual drought, but not for a couple months, for 400 years. They were waiting for God to speak again. And so here's what I want us to do for the rest of our time. I want us to meet our new friend Simeon, and I want us to sit at Simeon's feet and see what we can learn from Simeon for the remainder of this time. So number one, Simeon's longing revealed God's promise. Verses 25 and 26 of our text today says, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation, which means comfort, of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen 
the Lord's Christ. You can tell a lot about a person by what they long for, what their greatest longing is. What's your greatest longing in the world? For Simeon, his greatest longing was to see the consolation or comfort come through the Lord's Christ. We've all probably said at some point, if I could only do X or if I could only see X, I could die happy. Well, Simeon said this, except for he was completely serious about it. But the question must be asked, if God hadn't spoken for over 400 years, why did Simeon have such a confidence in the comfort of the Christ that God had promised? Well, the answer is simple. Because Simeon knew his Bible. But Simeon didn't just know his Bible. It wasn't just an intellectual activity for him. Simeon trusted his Bible. Simeon loved his Bible. And he was banking everything on it. So even 400 years later, Simeon had no doubt that he was going to see this promised comfort come through the Lord's Christ. So let's take a moment to read the Bible that Simeon would have read. First, God's promise of comfort. He would have read that in Isaiah chapter 40, 1 through 5, amongst other places. It says this, Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And we know that this is speaking of John the Baptist. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. When this comfort comes, there will be a great leveling that takes place. At the foot of the cross, no man can boast because the valleys will be brought up and the mountains will come down. As Christians, we should be the most humble people in the world. We should not contribute to the firefight of social media when these type of things happen this week. We should be the ones who are humbled. As Jonathan Edwards says, whenever I hear of a man's great sin, my first response will be to say, how sad that I could have done the same thing. This is what we are as Christians, and this is what Isaiah said. When the comfort of Israel comes, there will be a great leveling at the foot of the cross. Number two, the promise of Christ. From the very beginning, we see that God was already making provision for our salvation. So in Genesis 1, the very first book of the Bible, we get the great creation story. And in Genesis 2, we see the creation of man and woman. And then Genesis 3, the fall happens and sin enters the world because of the rebelliousness of man. And God pronounces judgment on the man and the woman and the serpent, which we know represents Satan. And in Genesis 3.15, we get what theologians called the Proto-Evangelium, which means the first gospel. God says this, speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So God is saying, one day there's going to be an offspring who comes, and you will strike at his heel, but he will strike at your head. This we know is Jesus Christ. In 1 John 3, 8, John says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Isaiah seven fourteen, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, 
the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I have no doubt that this was probably ringing in Simeon's ears whenever he saw the virgin coming forth with her son. And then in Micah 5, 2, we get this. But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who's to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So here we even see the virgin birth and then the prophecy of he will be born in Bethlehem, even though he was from Nazareth. These promises created a deep longing in Simeon, a deep confidence in, who, in the God who keeps his covenant with his people. And we are in a very similar situation 2,000 years later. We are a people of the book who are waiting for Christ. But this time we're not waiting for him to take care of our sins. He has already done that for us. We are waiting for him to come back and to renew all things, to be Lord of all the world. This is our great hope. Is that your greatest longing? You see, Simeon, his greatest longing was anchored in the promises of God. And as Christians, that's why we have to know our Bible. They're full of promises of God that we're meant to anchor our souls to. This is what the writers of the New Testament did. 2 Timothy 4.8, uh, Paul says this, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but catch this, but also to all who loved his appearing. Do you love the appearing of Christ? Is that your greatest longing? Revelation 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, the very end of the whole Bible, says this. He who testifies to these things, that is Jesus, says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, says John. And with that, the Bible is written. It is our great hope and our great longings that we will, will one day be fulfilled that keeps us anchored through these hard seasons. This is the repeated exhortation of the New Testament. Look to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Keep going because of Jesus. And you know that he is coming back. Simeon's longing revealed God's promises. Number two, Simeon's song revealed God's purpose. We start in verse 27. So Simeon saw them coming forth, and he responds with this beautiful song. He came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Um, the Friday before Thanksgiving, I was in my garage working on a, a desk. As some of you know, I've taken up a bit of carpentry. And this, this gal approached me, and she was very bothered and very serious in her disposition. And, and she said to me, when's the last time you've seen that guy? And she pointed to the place right next to me, my neighbor who I share a wall with. I said, I don't, I don't know. He doesn't come out all that often, maybe two or, two or three days. And she immediately made a beeline for his front door around my corner. And of course, I said, is... Is everything all right? Do you need help? And she said, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll let you know. And uh, I heard her, her banging on the door, yelling for dad. And I'm thinking, this is disconcerting. Um, and that continues on. And then I hear her trying to kick 
the door down, probably 12 feet from me. And she's yelling, Dad, and trying to kick the door down. And so I go around and ask her what's going on. And she says, my dad's sick, and he can't come to the door. And I can hear him, but, but he's not able to, to come. And so we went to all the windows to see if there was any entry point that wouldn't need to be broken to get into it. And there wasn't, so I, I went back to the front door, and I, and I broke through the deadbolts, and, and the guy was, was in there, and he was laying on the ground, very disoriented. And, um, of course, she called 911, and within seemingly two or three minutes, there was a fire truck and an ambulance and a stretcher and the whole deal, and they took him to, I think, Huntington. And then the next morning, I just, by happen chance, I, I was going out to my car, and I saw her, this, so this was Saturday morning, and I said, you know, how is, how is he doing? And she said, well, he's in the ICU. They don't, they don't know if he's going to make it. And her last words to me were, this is a really effed up situation. And so as I was reading this, um, studying this text this week, this part just hit me like an anvil when Simeon replies, now you can let your servant die in peace. And the reality is in Monday he did die. Um, this is the question that we all need to ultimately ask ourselves. Can we say with Simeon, now I can depart in peace? Because each one of us is going to die. And how can we have confidence to say, now your servant can depart in peace? I don't know my na- I didn't know my neighbor. I didn't even know his name. I don't know his situation. I know it didn't feel like a peaceful scenario. But when Simeon took Jesus Christ in his arms, he knew that God's purpose was now reaching its fulfillment. And what was his purpose? Well, verse 30, he tells us, my eyes have seen your salvation. This is God's purpose for coming to earth. Through his great love, he came on a divine rescue mission to save his people. But what was especially amazing and the greatest possible news for us here this morning is found in verse 32. Jesus brought salvation not just to Israel, but he was a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That's most of us here this morning, probably. Let the gravity of this not be lost on you. There was a time where Israel was known as the people of God. And now Simeon, holding Jesus, is saying, not just glory for Israel now, but a light of revelation for us Gentiles. That's us, friends. The Apostle Paul, being a Jew by birth, heralds this astonishingly good news to those in Rome writing this. Romans 10. For there is no distinction now between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God was now beginning the process of redeeming all things back to himself. His kingdom would now break the seams of Jerusalem and would start to flow into all the world, into every tribe, into every tongue. And Revelation tells us that there will be a representative from every tribe and every tongue. This was good news to the Gentiles. Jesus is the light of the whole world. Jesus is the hope for everyone. And this is what we have to offer our friends. Good news, not something that will make their lives a little bit more comfortable for a little bit. The reality is we're all going to die. But the good news that we have to offer them is eternal life in Jesus Christ. This is why Simeon could die in peace. Because he knew that he would never die. The only way to say you can die in peace is to have the confidence that you will never die. Two days after my neighbor died, I, got a, I was in Seattle visiting my, my family for Thanksgiving, and I got an email, friend, an email message from an old friend 
from high school. It's one of those type of friends where you haven't seen each other in years, but there's still just a closeness the moment you, you connect. And she said, hey, their old friend, if you could pray for me and my family. My husband died yesterday, 30 years old. He just died out of the blue. They were visiting their parents, and some heart arrhythmia thing kicked up, and, and he died. And um, after messaging me, she wrote on Facebook, as many of you are aware, my young husband, Matthew Floyd, passed away quite suddenly Tuesday the 25th. I'm so grateful to have loved and been loved so passionately for the past decade, yet I'm still utterly devastated at the loss of my friend. But then there was this in his obituary, and this, as Christians, is such a great piece that we can write this, even when somebody seems to die so tragically young. It says, Our dear, sweet Jonathan Matthew Floyd went home suddenly to Jesus on November 25th at the young age of 30. He is with his Lord and Savior, who he loved so much and for whom he desired to spread the gospel. Matthew loved God's written word from an early age and also studied it, as well the sermons and writings of many of God's workers. He felt led since the age of 12 to enter into ministry and to work for the glory of God's kingdom. He valued his salvation as the greatest blessing of his life and walked hand in hand with the Holy Spirit. How amazing is that? That they can write this just a day after their beloved husband and son died. Because they knew that Matthew never really died. This is the truth. Matthew is now more alive than he has ever been in his entire life on earth. So he could say with Simeon, and Simeon could say with Matthew then, when he beheld Christ, he knew he was holding salvation. He considered it the greatest blessing of his life. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that those who believe in him know they will never die. For those who are in Christ, friends, you will never die. This is the confidence that we have to say we will be able to be at peace when that time comes, when each other's time comes. So we have seen that Simeon's longing revealed God's promise, comfort in Christ. Simeon's song revealed God's purpose. Because of his love, he brought salvation. And finally, we see that Simeon's blessing revealed love's price. Verse 33 of our text. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own heart, soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts might be revealed. Simeon had just finished an eloquent, triumphant song about the salvation of God and what God had purposed through the sending of Jesus Christ. And Mary and Joseph were hearing this song being told about their son, this man they had just met, prophesying about how the salvation is going to come through him, not just for Israel, but for the Gentiles. But then Simeon's song ends on a minor key. The Holy Spirit had revealed to him the full picture of this salvation. This was an incredibly costly love. The salvation that he had just sang about would come through the death of Mary's firstborn son. A sword will pierce through her soul. And this is why, as Christians, we don't need to spend time with just feel-good self-help. We need something that actually addresses reality. 
something that we can actually stand on during the hardships of life, which will inevitably come, which God has promised will come. This is why this had to be a costly love, because God wasn't just sweeping our sins under the carpet. He was dealing decisively with our sins. And so the same prophet who had promised comforts also promised the cost. In Isaiah 52 and 53, we get what is called the Song of the Suffering Servant. We know this servant to be Jesus Christ. It says this, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is what it cost God to save the world. This is what it cost for our sins to be paid for. We cannot separate God's purpose from the price. This is shocking, isn't it? It's, it's, it's jarring. It doesn't sound like a happy Christmas story. The truth is it, it's meant to be shocking. And this is why we don't dare reduce Jesus Christ to a good moral teacher. We don't blaspheme the work of the Son of God on the cross by saying he had some good advice here and there. No. We'd say, as uh, C.S. Lewis said, we dare not come with patronizing nonsense. He is either the ruler of the world or he is nothing. And we know that he is the salvation and he is the good servant. Look at what Isaiah says again. If you feel like almost recoiling at that, well, you're not alone. Many were astonished. He was one from whom men hide their faces. Yet he brought us peace and salvation. But how did he bring us peace? Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. So friends, do not hide your face from this Christ. Do not recoil and and shame at what you're looking at. We all have hopefully experienced the peace and the beauty that Christ has brought us. But at some point, every one of us will have to look the marred, bruised Christ in his face to realize this is what it cost us. But don't shrink back from that because this is also the foundation for your confidence that your sins have decisively been dealt with. This was not a small thing for us to be saved. This is what it took So we dare not hide our faces from this Christ because this is the foundation and the bedrock of our salvation. This is the unimaginable length that God in his amazing love went to rescue us. This is the truth, friends. We cannot separate the cross of Christ from the love of God. The cross of Christ is the gold standard for God's love. Paul says it this way in Romans 5. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But 
God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So yes, the cross of Christ reveals just how dark our sin is and just what it cost, the death of the spotless Lamb of God. But it also reveals the unbelievable length of God's love towards us. Hebrews 12 tells us that for the joy that was sent before Christ, he gladly endured this for the glory of his Father and for us that we might dwell securely with God forever. This is our great hope, friends. And so Simeon says to Mary, rightly, that a sword will pass through her soul. We know, according to John's gospel, that Mary was there at the crucifixion. And so as a sword would pass through her son's side, that same sword would pass through her soul as well. And Simeon says that this man was appointed for the rising and the fall of many. This is the truth, friends. We cannot remain neutral at the cross. When we come to the cross, we cannot remain neutral. Will you rise or will you fall? You can't remain any more neutral than a man who is drowning can remain neutral at the prospect of a life preserver. To not grab onto it is to make a choice. Choose Jesus today. He has been appointed for your salvation. He has come for you. Won't you take Jesus in your arms just like Simeon took the baby Jesus in his arms and say with Simeon, now your servant can die in peace because you will never die. And Jesus stands here waiting for you this morning. I talked to my grandma last night. She's been in the uh, hospital, um, what, a couple weeks, since Thursday um, with a heart, heart deal, beating erratically. And so she's in there this morning as well. I don't talk to her on the phone very much, but uh, my aunt texted me last night, and she said, uh, Grandma just asked if she could talk to you. So are you in a place where we can call you? And I said, of course. And so uh, my phone rang maybe 10 seconds later, and it's my grandma and her her weak voice on the other line. And um, we're just talking, and I was asking her if she's comfortable and what's going on, and of course, ask her if she's not giving the doctors too much trouble, any good grandson bantering for a bit. And um, I asked her, of course, if I could pray for her, and she said, yes, that would be nice. And so I prayed for my grandma, and uh, I prayed that she would sense uh, the love of the Holy Spirit and, and the peace that Jesus brings her, and, and said amen. And, and just moments after I said amen, she said, you know, that really is a great comfort. And her, her last words to me were, uh, I don't have any idea how anybody does it without him. He's here waiting this morning, friends. Trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as I'm finding now, every time I I stand in this position, who is worthy for these things? Well, the reality is, Lord, nobody is worthy. But through Jesus, we are all now worthy to come before you. And so it's in that state, with that understanding, that I stand here with a great confidence that you have secured our salvation, not in a superficial way, but in an unbelievably painful and real way that you have uh, dealt decisively with all of our sins. And so your salvation is not just for glory of Israel, but it is for the Gentiles as well. I pray for all of my friends who are in the chapel this morning as I prayed for them throughout the week, that they would find a great peace and the love that you have shown them. And if there is any here this morning 
who have not taken Jesus in their arms, that today they would do so. So Holy Spirit, right now I ask that you perform miracles in this chapel for your great glory and for our salvation. In Christ's name, amen.